0: Good morning, why don't you uh, have a seat, but remain standing, as it were, in your hearts as we read from the first chapter of the book of Joshua. It's a pretty long section, verses 1 through 9, so uh, bear with me. The word of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will also be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When I was a kid, uh, my family used to take trips from Miami to Detroit. My mom's folks lived in Detroit, and we would drive down all the way on I-75 to Miami. Well, one of these trips, halfway down, we stopped at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, and so we all go together down into the bowels of this massive cavern. And at one point, the, the leader says, All right, you're going to get to experience the thrill of total darkness, and I'm going to turn out the lights, and I want you to be completely quiet. So right before the lights go out, my grandfather, who is standing next to me, quietly reaches down and takes my hand. And then, poof, the lights go out. I maybe lasted two seconds, three seconds before I needed to break the rules. And I, I asked my grandfather, Grandpa, you still there? And uh, he broke the rules, too, and said, yeah, I'm here, Mike. I uh, spent the first 15 years of my life in Miami, and I'll never forget the day. I was in ninth grade, riding my bike to and from school, rounding the corner into, uh, onto our street, and I see in front of our front yard the Century 21 Sold sign. My family was getting ready to move to Live Oak, Florida, and I was getting ready to leave behind me the security of all that I knew and all that I loved. A few years ago, friend, Dan, and I are in Car Lake on Meridian Road. Summertime, fishing for bass little canoe, little tiny engine, and as the summertime sometimes does, a massive thunderstorm came out of nowhere, completely surrounded the lake, and lightning is just coming down all around. In fact, there's a big radio tower, I think it is, right by the lake. It gets hit. Sparks, smoke, I'm scared to death, crumpled over in the front of this little canoe, praying with every lightning strike. And Dan is in the back of the canoe trying to get us back to the shore, cursing with every lightning strike, kind of canceling out my prayers. And uh, anyway, well, those are just three of thousands of examples in my life. And I know you have just as many in yours. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about fear. We'll eventually get back to Joshua standing on the edge of the Jordan But we're going to start off in Colorado, where a researcher took a bunch of school-age kids, and he wanted to do some research and find out exactly what they were afraid of. Give me your lists of all the things you're scared of, and here's just a few of them. Losing a parent, being ridiculed in class, parental fights, getting lost, having a scary dream. So there's kind of a related grown-up version of this survey that you can find in a book called The Book of Lists, and it has lots of lists of things. And among them is a collection of our most common fears. Here are the top six. Speaking in public, that's my personal favorite. Heights, insects and bugs, financial problems, deep water, and death. So what about you? What would you make if you were to write your own little personal list of fears Maybe losing the security of something in your life to which you hold dearly, or someone who you love. What about making the, quote, wrong decision in life? What about being judged or rejected? Well, next I'd like us to take a little look at a definition of fear, and I realize you're probably thinking, Mike, don't need you to divine fear for me. I've been experiencing it all my life, and I'm pretty much a pro at it by now, but uh Indulge me, we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between fear and anxiety, and also talk a little bit about some of the flavors that fear can take on. So a definition of fear. Fear is an emotional response, a response, to tangible and realistic dangers. It's usually connected with pain. It's a survival mechanism. You've all heard of the fight or flight response. It's immediate and constructive. You identify something good that's threatened and your autonomic nervous system kicks in, and you respond. It's like a thunderstorm, quick and passing. Anxiety is abiding and deeper. It's diffused and generalized. You don't know exactly what's wrong, and it can occur when your sense of self is threatened. It's more spiritually rooted. Anxiety is lingering and destructive. Your autonomic nervous system is on all the time and it can cause high blood pressure and ulcers. Unlike a thunderstorm, quick and passing, this one is like a cold rain, gray and sustained. Anxiety could also be described as the tension we face as humans of being afraid of dying and afraid of living at the same time. Anxiety, in this sense, is deeply connected with trust. And then I mentioned the flavors of fears, right? Just listen to these words concern, caution, nervousness, worry, fear, anxiety, panic, terror, horror, dread. You see the sense, this one word can mean so many things. Keep your ears open for those flavors as we move forward. So, what about the Bible? What's Scripture have to say to us about fear? I started looking for examples, and I quickly realized I had a lot of material to work with. In the English Standard Version, the word fear is mentioned 436 times, and that doesn't even count words like anxiety, horror, those kinds of things. So what I'd like to do is just, no, we're not going to go through all 436 examples. We're going to do just a couple examples of how fear is used in the Bible from the Old Testament. Fear enters the Bible story when Adam and Eve realized their nakedness after eating the forbidden fruit. They were afraid, and ever since then, there's been a connection with fear and sin. Noah builds the ark in reverent fear. And after the floodwaters subside, the animals are afraid of man. Abraham is afraid for his life because a very powerful man takes an interest in his wife, Sarah. The Hebrew midwives, in reverent fear of the Lord, decided to sort of break the law of Pharaoh and not murder the Hebrew children. Gideon, remember him? 22,000 soldiers surrounding him all go home because they're afraid. And then Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And quickly through the New Testament, any time the angel of the Lord shows up, What does he need to say? Don't be afraid. Fear not. He comforts Mary. He comforts the shepherds. Almost every time Jesus heals somebody, somebody in that moment is afraid. This power in this man. The disciples, after the death of Jesus, hide in a room because they're scared of the Jews. Fear falls on the early church at the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Paul encourages the church of Philippi to work out their salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And then later to Timothy, Paul says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So maybe this leaves some questions in your mind. For example, how does work out your salvation with fear and trembling fit with perfect love, cast out all fear? There are examples in the Bible of being told to fear not, And there are examples of being praised for fear. And we're left wondering how all this fits into our lives as we seek to follow the Lord. So we've already discussed the fight-or-flight response, the version of fear that's kind of wired into our DNA. I think this kind of fear is natural and good, or at least neutral. But there's a whole lot of other circumstances in which we find ourselves that our fears can be very negative. I recently heard Tim Keller say that the opposite of fear is love. And it's in this sense that we read passages like 1 John 4:18 that says, "There is no fear in love, but perfect fear drives perfect love drives out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love." Well, while preparing for this while preparing for this sermon, I figured I'd test some of these ideas out of fear with our kids. I thought it might be fun to conduct my own little mini-survey with Bailey and Claire, and I had them make their lists, and the list was very much like the list from the kids in Colorado. There were a few notable exceptions. We added tornadoes to our list, and we also added getting the knots brushed out of your hair to our list. But uh, Claire disagreed when Bailey mentioned monsters. Claire felt very strongly that monsters should not be on the list because, first of all, monsters are not real. And second of all, Claire knows Taekwondo. So I just wanted to you guys are in good hands with my daughter. Well, after going over the list, Claire asked me, Dad, what does it mean to fear God? And I think I said something about it being just another word for respect. And she looked at me as if to say, Well, how come they just didn't say respect instead of fear? So I decided to go for the Bible dictionary approach. Not exactly sure what I was thinking. But just in case you were wondering, here's what it says. Fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is used as a designation of true piety. It's a fear conjoined with love and hope and is therefore not a slavish dread, but rather filial reverence. A holy fear is enjoined also in the New Testament as a preventive of carelessness in religion and as an incentive to penitence. When I was done with that, Claire just kind of looked at me and said, I still don't get it. And neither did I. Um, I was at a loss, and so we started doing something else. And uh, while we were playing, I was reminded of how C.S. Lewis might have answered my daughter's question. You've probably seen the movie, and maybe you've even read the book, and remember the scene where the four children are gathered with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan. There's rumor that he's on the loose. And Lucy asks, Is he a man? "'Aslan, a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he's the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' "'Oh,' said Susan, "'I thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.' "'That you will, dearie, and make no mistake,' said Mrs. Beaver." If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, that description made a lot more sense to Claire. So back to Joshua, with all that being said about fear and anxiety and fearing God, let's get back to the first chapter. There he is, Joshua. Maybe he's sitting down on the bank of the Jordan River with this tremendous gathering of people around him looking for guidance. He's been chosen to fill the shoes of Moses, who's been dead now for about a month. And the time for the people to grieve is now over. Joshua is preparing to lead this people, some of whom are looking back to Egypt, Into an unknown land filled with giant, strong, and numerous people. But God has told him, be strong and courageous, to be neither frightened nor dismayed. It was time to cross the river. I think it's important to note here that Joshua wasn't acting in a vacuum, and neither do we. He wasn't just plopped down into this moment with millions of people around him looking to him saying, all right, you're in charge. He was brought to this moment, and it was time for him to act. Remembering back into the past, he could draw on the strength of God's provision as he looked across the river. He could remember the giant Amorite kings that God defeated. He could remember the cloud and the fire of God's spirit leading them. He could remember the manna from heaven. He could remember the mountain. He could remember 40 years ago when his parents, the previous generation, was at a similar place, and they chose not to enter in, Because they were too afraid. He could remember God leading them through the Red Sea. And he could remember all the way back to when he was born as a slave in Egypt. The strong hand of God was with him and his people, guiding and providing, allowing, protecting, and caring throughout this journey up to the river's edge. Joshua remembered. Our memories hold our stories creating the soil in which our hopes and dreams and fears arise. What's your story? What's the condition of your heart and my heart? When we look to the Jordan, across the Jordan, to the promises of God, do we see giants who are going to crush us, or do we see our Heavenly Father there with his arms open wide, beckoning us to take steps and cross over? When your eyes are on the Lord, you may sense more than his love and gentleness. You may sense his splendor and power and strength. And in this sense, you may sense a healthy fear of God. Remember how Peter fixed his eyes on Jesus? Seeing the splendor and power and the limitless possibility of Jesus walking on the water and how Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. And then remember what happened when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus onto the water below, and the uncertainty of the waves. When our eyes are on the giants and the waves and the competing powers threatening our existence and the struggle to simply survive, this healthy fear that we can experience can, in an instant, turn into an unhealthy dread and we begin to sink. But take heart. Even when we begin to sink, we are not without hope. We are never beyond the loving reach of a Savior who is able to grab us and carry us back into the boat. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're promised safe lives, or long lives, or trouble-free lives. But God promises to always be there with us, working his will for the good from the moment that we step into the world until the moment that we step out of it. Now I'd like us to take a look at a couple problems related to fearing the Lord. The first is not fearing the Lord, and the second is not trusting the Lord. If I have no sense of the selfishness or pride in my heart, I only see God as safe. There's no sense of consequence for the actions born out of my heart. His appearance and my disposition towards him become distorted, and I'm less likely to see the face of the crucified Christ and more likely to see something that looks a little bit like Barney the dinosaur or Santa Claus. In this altered view, my distorted sense of pain and love, I create an idol of God who is smaller than me, controlled by me, and kept safely in a box. I have no sense of my need for forgiveness. On the other hand, and perhaps closer to home, do you ever get the sinking feeling that you're supposed to be fixed after you become a Christian? And if you're not fixed and shiny that God's in a state of perpetual unhappiness with you, a few of you might remember Mike Kanjan, the pastor at Wildwood. He was recently reflecting on this, and he says, this is kind of a paraphrase, the Apostle Paul did a peculiar thing in several of his writings. He told his story over and over again, reminding us, and I think himself, that he had been a persecutor and murderer of Christ's followers, and that he was the chief of sinners. I think he did this to keep before him that in Jesus, he was never fixed, but forgiven, which is far better. And the constant reminders protected him from the danger of slowly dying from the inside out behind a false veneer of having no more struggle or problems as it can us. So for those of us who tend to slip in the view of our father as an angry parent or a judge with whom we must negotiate, for those of us who feel that God is always frustrated with us because we just keep messing up, look to the cross and remember your forgiveness. Have you begun to see the significance of the relationship with the object of your fear? Imagine yourself standing in front of the presence of someone or something immeasurably more powerful you than you, and you sense that it's getting ready to act. Something is about to happen. It's looking directly at you, and it looks hungry. What if we raised it up a notch and added that this thing, this lion, knows you better than you know yourself and knows your deepest desires and all the ways that you've chosen to have those desires satisfied, he knows your deepest fears and all the ways you've chosen to respond to people who threatened what you wanted. He also knows that deeper than your desire to avoid being eaten is your desire to be loved and forgiven. Do you see that matters, what matters most is the presence in whose presence we stand? Think of the woman at the well. If we're standing in front of our accuser, hungry for punishment, we're doomed. If we're standing in front of our advocate, willingly, standing in our place, we're loved and forgiven. So back to Joshua, standing on the bank of the Jordan River, leaving God's people into the fulfillment of promise. We've already mentioned the importance of memory and the many moments past upon which Joshua drew his strength. Let's look back for one last time to one last memory that took place 400 years earlier. In Genesis chapter 15, there's Abram, he's not yet named Abraham, standing in front of the presence of someone immeasurably more powerful than he is. God promises Abraham that he will take possession of the land, this same land that Joshua is standing in front of. And Abram asks God, How can I know this will be? Which is another way of saying, Do you promise? And God tells Abraham to take a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abraham cuts them in half, separates the halves and makes a pathway. The rest of the day, he fights off vultures and buzzards until the sun begins to set. Abraham has been waiting, expecting God to say, Abraham, now as the custom of the day is, I expect you to walk through and make a promise. What happens? Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And verse 12 says, Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then notice, Abraham has a vision and sees a smoking firepot and the flaming torch of the Spirit of God. And God, as it were, says, Abraham, not you. May it be to me as these pieces if I don't keep my promise to you. Well, here we are, thousands of years later, gathered in this sanctuary, about to head back to our cars, our Sunday afternoon meals, the rest of our lives, in ways unique to us all, we face turbulent waters when we leave this place, things beyond our control, not unlike the Israelites so long ago. I encourage you this morning to focus your gaze as you look to what lies ahead. I encourage you to look to our lion, a king. A man named Joshua, but pronounced Yeshua, Jesus, who called 12 men to follow him, much like the 12 tribes who were with Joshua, Jesus, who passed the cup of his new covenant, not unlike the Lord passing between the pieces, making a promise to you and to me. Do you see Joshua, the son of God, whose name means he shall save, calling you to the water's edge? Can you hear him saying, I am with you till the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't worry about what you'll wear or drink or eat. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are many river crossings in life. Decisions to be made, a sense of calling to move forward into unknown territory. When we come to the riverbank, let's look up from the turbulent waters and see Jesus standing there with us saying, follow me follow me when desire or fear tempt you to take the path back to egypt follow me when you're grasping for your way your truth and your life follow me when no one else is looking and when everyone else is looking follow me when the thunderstorms of life roll in follow me when you're about to leave the security of everything you know and love behind Follow me when it gets so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. When it's time to cross the river, be strong and courageous. Follow me. Amen. Thank you for listening to Centerpoint Church's weekly podcast. For more information, visit our website at www.cptchurch.com.